Well, do keep your Bibles open at that uh, section we've just read together. Uh, many, many of you are regulars here know the, uh, the hoops through which uh, I had to go in order to get to the United States. Getting into the United States is not an easy business. Getting a visa, first of all, requires a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of teamwork on the part of the people in the church here in order to get it. Then, then you get here and you discover that you can't do stuff without a driver's license as a form of identification. But you can't have a driver's license until you have a social security number. So you then have to go through the hoops to try and get a social security number and there are all kinds of difficulties involved in getting into the US and being allowed to stay here. Then once you get to stay here, all you have to do is go out the country for a moment and when you come back, they don't want to let you back in again. Very, very difficult kind of procedure. And, uh, of course, there are good reasons for that. But I want to say this. However difficult it is to get in and stay in in the United States, that is nothing. It is absolutely nothing. It is a cakewalk in comparison to anybody who wants to move from being a Gentile, a Goyim, a Gentile, to becoming a Jew. And that is the picture that we have painted for us here in Acts chapter 11. I want you to look at this chapter. It's uh, a chapter of the meeting of a church. Just incidentally, as I was looking at this and thinking about this church that meets here in Jerusalem, some things hit me as I was reading the account. The first is the absence of bishops or prince bishops in this church. There doesn't seem to be anybody who has a kind of monarchical role in this church. So I concluded that it's not an Episcopal church that's meeting here. And the second thing I noticed is that this is a church that is part of a network of churches. It's already been responsible for seeing Christianity grow, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. We know there already are congregations outside of Samaria uh, on, the, uh, on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, going up north and south of the coastline. Uh, here is a church that is now deliberating on what has happened in a Gentile area. And uh, so here's a church that is not a local church. It's not a local church. This is a church that is part of a network of churches. It is not an independent, standalone church. So it's not Baptist or Congregational. It's not Episcopal, it's not Baptist or Congregational. The third thing that I noticed as I looked at this account is that here is a church with a plurality of leaders. They're apostles in the early days, but as you go on in Acts, you discover that the apostles in local churches are replaced by elders presbyters. Now if I didn't know any better and I was reading this without any background whatsoever, I would come away with the idea that this is in fact an account of a meeting of the First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem. <laughs> now that's a bit of historical anachronism I know, reading back into the text what we now understand. I just think we've probably read out of the text exactly the right stuff and that's why we are where we are today. But the most significant thing and this is the most Presbyterian of all of the things in this story, is that here is a church that is very aware, very conscious of the continuity as well as discontinuity, the continuity between Israel and the church, Israel in the Old Covenant and the church in the New Covenant. This is very important for our understanding as we go forward this evening. Let me... Uh, again, say something about the context. If, if you've been coming along on Sunday evenings, uh, then you'll know this. It will immediately hit you if you're just 
here for the evening, this may not have the same impression on you, but there's a lot of repetition going on in these two chapters, 10 and 11. It, it feels repetitive because it is repetitive. There's a lot going on. The, the whole sequence of events that is described in chapter 10 is repeated in chapter 11. And within those uh, accounts, there's more repetition. There are specific parts that are retold again and again. Uh, Cornelius' vision is described several times. Uh, the, uh, the, by Luke, the writer, by Cornelius' servants, telling Peter, by Cornelius himself, and now again by Peter telling the church. So several times that story is told. Peter's dream or vision, it is recounted three times in the story. The conversion of Cornelius, this Roman soldier, is told three times in, in chapters 10 and 11, and again in chapter 15. And all of that repetition, I think, is emphasizing to us that what we are reading in these two chapters is of absolutely pivotal importance for the church of God in the world. So it's important, I think, to pay attention to it. And this Gentile conversion, because really what it, it's all about is the fact that here for the very first time, in a public way, with apostolic approval, for the first time ever, Gentiles, non-Jews, non-card-carrying, paid-up, circumcised Jews are becoming Christians. That's the issue that is coming before the church in chapter 11. And it raises questions, it raises questions about the work of God, about the ways of God, and about the welcome of God. And I want to look at those three things this evening as we proceed. First of all, it, it raises a question about the work of God, how that work works, if you will. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. In fact, one of the themes of Acts is the story of the power and progress of the Word of God. The work of God works by the Word of God. That's one of the themes of Acts. Again and again, we're told about the progress of the journeying and the powerful Word of God or the Word of the Lord or quite simply the Word. And we see this Word at work creating a new community, a new covenant community of people, of men and women, drawn together. And, uh, and it's all built around this same word. The people who are brought into this community feed on the word. They're nourished by the word, strengthened by the word, converted by the word. The word is doing a great work of creation, actually of new creation in the book of Acts. And as the story is recounted, one of the things that is not so obvious if you're not familiar with the Bible is that a lot of the language that's being used in this passage is steeped in the language of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is the dominant Old Testament interpretive key to understanding what's going on in the book of Acts. Because in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah foresees in the future a new exodus in the last days, in the end times, a new exodus in the last days in which there will be a restoration of Israel. A restoration of Israel in the last days. In fact, the controlling promise of Isaiah, which is picked up 
by the writer, by Luke, as he writes Acts, the controlling promise of the book of Isaiah is in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, I'm going to read parts of that promise to you now. It shall come to pass, Isaiah writes, in the latter days, there's the key, it's the end times, the last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that is the temple, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up and nations, all the nations, shall flow into it. So here are all the nations flowing into the temple of the Lord. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And here's a key verse. For out of Zion, Zion is the Christian name, the end times name for Jerusalem. It's, it's not so much the physical city there on the real estate in the Middle East. Zion stands for the people of God, the people of God, the place of God, and ultimately the heavenly Zion. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And when you come to the book of Acts, Peter and others in Acts see this actually taking place. The word of the Lord goes out from Jerusalem. It goes out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, this word of the Lord. Back in chapter 10, verse 36, when Peter is talking to these Gentiles, he says to them, as for the word that he sent to Israel, notice that, as for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace, shalom through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of all. So this promise is developed throughout the whole of the book of Acts, especially in the latter part of Isaiah, where in Isaiah chapter 45, we have an emphasis on the ends of the earth. This message is to go out into all the earth. That's one of the predominant ideas. Back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, you'll be witnesses, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there in Isaiah chapter 45, God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. This word, this message, this gospel that is going out is for all the world because there is only one God and there's only one message for all the world. He goes on to say this, Isaiah 45, God says, By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or again, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 55, we read about uh, the Word of God. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, it shall accomplish that which I purpose. So here's the Word of God. In Isaiah, the Word is going out, the Word's going out into all the nations, the Word is going out with power to accomplish the will of God in the world. And what, I, what the book of Acts is saying to us is, that that prophecy of an end times movement of the Word of God to the ends of the earth has begun to be fulfilled, has begun to be fulfilled in the events during the lifetime of the apostles of Jesus Christ. That's why in Acts chapter 2 we see a description of the people who are gathered in Jerusalem. Acts 2.5 They were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. The language is meant to connect us with the language of the Old Testament. Those people who are there on the day of Pentecost represent the nations of the world. 
people from every nation under heaven. Because in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, Isaiah foresees a day when those who are dispersed of Israel are gathered together and then nations are brought together. If you look at, uh, for example, if you look at Acts 2, and don't do it now because I want your attention for the next little while, but if you look at Acts 2 and you compare it with the table of the nations described at the time of the Tower of Babel, you'll find there is an almost direct replication of those nations. They, they represent the nations of the world. It's a kind of literally symbol of the nations of the world. All the nations of the world are represented by those who are there on the day of Pentecost. And on that day of Pentecost, the word goes out to the world. God is doing a new thing. It's a new creation, a new community that God is creating. So in Acts chapter 6, the Word of God continued to increase. Language that comes from Genesis about go out, be fruitful, multiply, increase, fill the earth. Here's the Word of God going out, increasing, filling the earth. And the Word of God increased and multiplied, we're told, Acts chapter 12. Again, the very language that Adam was given to go out and increase and multiply and fill the earth. Here's the Word of God doing what Adam was meant to do by his progeny and having in having uh, godly children to go out and fill the earth. The Word of God is doing this and is bringing people under the authority of King Jesus. So a number of things strike me as I, I come to this text and I, and I read it for the first time. I, I'm, I'm impressed first by what is reported that the Gentiles had received the Word of God. I'm interested in that because you would have thought that anybody reading Acts chapter, chapter 10 and giving a, an account would probably focus on the fact that the people who received the Spirit there, the Gentiles who received the Spirit there, are speaking languages that they'd never learned. If you'd been here for the uh, Sola Dea Gloria before the service, you would have heard Dr. Jones speaking in tongues. He was sitting at this piano speaking in tongues. Uh, I, I, that's how rumors start, by the way. Uh, the... the <laughs> The tongue that he was, he told, he told us the tongue that he was using was Welsh. I'm not sure whether it was or not, but we'll believe him because he's a, a man of integrity and he's Welsh himself, so he should know that whether it's Welsh. It, it, bits of it did sound like Welsh to me, I have to say. And I, I think the rest was probably Welsh as well. But anyway, he was, he was demonstrating something. I don't know whether he's learned Welsh or the, the Holy Spirit gave him those words to say to us tonight. But they, can you imagine? This is what happens in chapter 10 and it happened back in chapter 2 that God gave these languages. I think today that's what would be reported in Jerusalem. But what is reported in Jerusalem is that Gentiles have received the Word of God. To the great surprise of everybody, Gentiles have received the Word of God. That leads me to my second point. It's the ways of God. Well, that was the thing that struck these people, that God should work in this way. And, and what strikes me again, here's my second thing that strikes me. Things strike me. They just kind of slap me in the face when I'm working on the text. The second thing that struck me was that there already appears to be within the church, back in Jerusalem, back at the ranch, there appears to be people in that church who already are kind of forming themselves into a kind of party. There's the sense that something is developing here because we're told that there were those there who were criticizing Peter. And this is what they said. Look at verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. There you go. 
Whenever the truth goes out into the world, there are always people who are waiting to twist it. One way or another, just a little tweak here, just a microscopic change there, and the trajectory takes you into error. That's what happens all the time. And so what we discover here, we just need to read this. The very word to criticize there in verse 2 is a hint to this. The circumcision party criticized him. There was already a kind of developing group there. There was, well, maybe by this stage there was a kind of spirit. There was a mood. There was a, a shape to a party within the church. And they're critical. You went to uncircumcised men. You see, by this stage... The majority, the vast majority of people who were Christians were circumcised. They were either Jews or they were Jews and Samaritans. But at this stage, there was no large-scale incursion into the church of people who were Gentile and therefore uncircumcised. And this came as a great shock to these people. We have this emergence of this circumcised, uncircumcised language that is going to have an event, eventually, it's going to be a big problem within the church. It's going to develop into a group of people called Judaizers. They're going to be a, a thorn in the flesh of the Apostle Paul. Going to morph into that in the future. And those people, the Judaizers, are going to go further than this group. They're actually going to insist that if somebody becomes a Christian who is a Gentile, that person has to become a Jew as well, which means if you're a man, you have to be circumcised. Not the best idea for church growth, I would say. Very uncomfortable kind of demand to make. But at this stage, it's not gone that far. It's going to go that far, but at this stage, it hasn't gone that far. At this stage, it's more of a critique that's going on, a kind of critical attitude that's going on, the kind of shades of Jesus' own experience. You remember when he was criticized for eating and drinking with the unclean, the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. And here we have Peter. Peter, one of the leading apostles. Peter is called to account. He doesn't get automatic approval. Peter is no pope here. He is called to account by the church. And what is he facing as he is called to account? He's facing a charge. A charge that he has done something wrong. That's the implication. They're criticizing him for this. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. There's two charges there. One, he went into the home of uncircumcised men. Two, he had table fellowship with those people. Those were bad things. Now, at one level, at one level, let's say, what's going on here is a kind of normal human reaction to change. People don't like change. Even people that say they want change. You know, whenever a new minister comes to a church, people come to up, up to them and they say, we're really glad you're here and we hope that you'll change things, you know, you know because you're a new minister, you're a new broom, all that stuff. And, and then they discover, somewhere down the road, you discover, I've discovered this so many times, you see, it just comes as old hat to me. Everybody wants change until you start to change their thing. Oh, then then it's not, that's, it's not a popular thing then. It's not a good thing once you start changing the thing they love. They don't mind you changing somebody else's thing. We want you to make them like us. But if I try to make them like them, then that's a different ballgame altogether. So at one level, it's that, it's that kind of human, very human reaction. They, they did not like change. They had their traditions. Well, everybody has traditions. 
I mean, I remember one occasion being at a church that was a very contemporary church. It was, it was a contem very contemporary church with, in its music and so forth. And, and one of the things, of course, people in contemporary style churches like that, the people that I was working with, uh, pride themselves on is that they are fresh and new and avant-garde and responsive and to culture and so on. And, and change is something they can do and handle and so forth. You try going into that situation and trying to bring, try to bring into that situation a traditional service. Let me tell you, these people who are so easy to move and so adjustable to culture, these people suddenly discover they can't adjust to anything at all, actually. Their contemporary thing is an absolute ironclad, immovable object. They can't do it. I know it works the other way, too, but I thought I'd criticize them rather than us. Because <laughs> I'll be fair, balanced, and so on. It's just, the way, it's just the way it is. We all have traditions, whether they're new traditions or old traditions. We all have them. And at one level, at one level, this is a problem with change. But of course, there's another level, a deeper level. This was a bigger issue than that. These people, unlike us, when it comes to our views on music and worship and so forth, unlike us, these people had the law of Moses on their side. They pointed back to the law of Moses that required circumcision. Went back all the way to Abraham. Then it was in Moses' law, it was enforced in the church. If you'd gone and you'd interviewed, if we had, a, uh, had one of these vox pox things, and we went, we, pops thing, and we went around and we interviewed the people in the church, and you said to the people in the church at Jerusalem, what is your mission statement? They would say, well, Jesus said that we're, to, we're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you'd said to them, is that what you're aiming to do? And they would have said, yeah, sure, of course, absolutely. We're a mission-minded church. We're, we're going to get the gospel out to the world. But then if you'd said to them, well, you're getting the gospel out to the world will mean this. It will mean that, in fact, this, the center of gravity which starts in Jerusalem is going to change. It's going to shift. It's going to shift to Antioch, which happens actually at the end of this chapter. And then eventually it's going to shift to Rome. And it's going to keep shifting westwards until the center of gravity for Christianity is going to be in a place that nobody's discovered yet, across the Atlantic. And then the center of gravity for Christianity is going to move eastwards again, jumping over Palestine going to the Far East, probably I'm making a prophetic prediction there, which doesn't happen often in 10th pulpits, that the center of gravity for Christianity may very well end up being in the Far East in the, Chinese, in the China area. Well, these people are going to have to deal with all of that in the future. But this circumcision party felt that they had a head start with God. And in their spiritual arrogance, they were concerned that Peter had gone to sit with and have fellowship with these people in Joppa. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we look back at this and we think, well, this doesn't relate very much to us, but it does really, because within the church today there are groups who, who believe that there are the haves and the have-nots within the Christian fellowship. I remember when I was at theological seminary, I, I, I was kind of enthusiastic. I was young in those days. I had energy. I was very enthusiastic for things, and, I, and uh, people automatically assumed because I had enthusiasm that I must be a charismatic. We didn't call them charismatics in those days because that word hadn't been invented yet. At least people hadn't started to use it then. And so there was a group of people, other students in the church, 
uh, sorry, in the seminary, and they started to have a little prayer group. And they came to me and they said, a number of us are going to have a little prayer group to pray for the seminary, to pray for the staff and the other students that the Holy Spirit would, that they would get the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and I refused to meet with them. I said, you realize this is divisive. You, you, if you start praying like that, you're saying that there are two groups of people here in this seminary, that there are those who have and those who have not, those who have the Spirit and those who don't have the Spirit. You're dividing the body of Christ. That is a divisive thing. And these were really spiritually minded people. They would not talk to me from that moment on. I mean, that's how spiritually minded they were. The Holy Spirit obviously gave them a spirit of don't talk to Liamness, which is a new kind of thing. That's happened several times, actually. Anyway, so, so this kind of dividing over small issues happens in the church today. Well, Peter tells the story. I'm not going to recount all that Peter says because if you were here last time, you've heard it before. And if you haven't heard it before, you've read it this evening. But he, he repeats the story of what happened. He tells them how it was that he had, he had a trance. He saw this big white sheet come down with all these clean and unclean animals. God tells him to kill and eat. And then uh, the command is followed by an interaction between the Lord and Peter. Peter says, no, Lord. The Lord says, I'm Lord, you're not. <laughs> And Peter says, okay, Lord, and he eats. And he hears the word of, the, uh, he hears the word of God. If you look at verses 9 and 10, the, the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. Three times that vision comes. Three times those words are spoken. And the point of all of that is to teach us this, a new perspective on the mission of the church. It's for the whole world. A new perspective on the law of Moses, that the moral law of Moses is fulfilled in Jesus who keeps the law perfectly. He is the only righteous one. The ceremonial law of Moses is fulfilled in the work of Jesus as he goes to the cross, as he sheds his blood for our sin, as he washes us clean by his blood. And the civil law of Moses, the, the structure of Israeli society, Israelite society in those, in those days, that civil law is replicated now, nowadays in the church where Jesus is the head, head and king of the church. He is the Lord of all and we live our lives under the authority of King Jesus. The law has been fulfilled in Christ, the righteous one, the sin-bearing Savior and the ruling Lord. And this emphasis is the one that Peter gives as he repeats the story. And, and one of the key issues is this, that he had with him, he wasn't there on his own, he had with him circumcised witnesses who were there to verify the story that he was telling. Jews with him who verified the story that he was telling. Well, all of this leads to the final point, which is the main point of the passage, and that is the welcome of God. The welcome of God. Here's how Peter puts it. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Peter says, you remember at Pentecost, the Spirit fell, people were speaking in languages they'd never learned. The same thing happened to these Gentiles, as happened to us at the beginning. It wasn't a normative thing. It was an occasional thing. It happened only twice. And I remembered, he goes on to say, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, got John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, 
If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who was I that I should stand in God's way? Now you see, what Peter is arguing for here is this. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of try to show you my reasons for believing this, but I think what Peter is arguing here is this. Gentiles, by faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles are brought into the end time new Israel of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles are brought into the end time new Israel of God. Now I say that because behind the language that's used here are these prophetic predictions that that is precisely what was going to happen in the last days. Luke, remember this is a two-volume work, the work we call Luke and the work we call Acts, both written by Luke in two parts. In this two-part work, Luke-Acts, Luke has been telling us that Jesus repeatedly was warning Israel, the Jews, that if they rejected him, God would reject them as the true people of God and judge them. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus weeps over the city that cannot see the things that make for her shalom, her peace, because they've hidden their eyes, they've blocked their eyes, they won't see. They didn't recognize the time of their visitation. God had visited them. They didn't recognize that, didn't receive that. In Luke chapter 21, he predicts, accurately predicts, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed. God is going to do this very spectacular thing. The temple and the city will be absolutely destroyed as a perpetual reminder that the glory of God has shifted, moved, moved out. He tells a parable of the vineyard. you remember a vineyard and the servants who come and then the son ultimately who comes and they kill the servants and they kill the son. And these are the words that are spoken. Therefore I say to you, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now, in the language that is used of this end times new Israel, Jesus often uses the image of a stone. A stone which causes people to stumble. That's a quotation from the Old Testament, but it's also a metaphor that's used often in the Old Testament and particularly about the end times purpose of God. It is used in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel sees a great statue of various uh, uh, forms of metal. The statue represents all the persecuting powers that persecute the people of God. And he sees a little stone that's released from a mountain and it comes down the mountain and as it comes down the mountain it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually it hits the statue at the bottom of the hill and demolishes the statue. The, the empires, the kingdoms of this world are demolished by the little stone, the kingdom of God. Now these persecuting powers, who are they? Well, they're obviously Gentile powers. But what happens in the story of the Gospels? What happens in the story of the Gospels is we discover the Jews, Israel, the old Israel of the first century, positioning itself as if it were one of the Gentile powers. You can see this, for example, 
in the book of John, where in the book of John, the disciples, uh, the, the people of Israel, the authorities of Israel, in their conversation, do you remember with Caesar, with, with uh, Pilate? Pilate wants to release Jesus. They don't want him to release Jesus. And do you remember what the official authorities of Israel say to Pilate? We have no king but Caesar. These are Jews talking. These are the official representatives and spokesmen of the Jewish nation speaking. They are saying to Pilate, we are Gentiles now, we have no king but Caesar. Interestingly, in John's Gospel, we find Jesus separating himself from old Israel. John chapter 12 is a pivotal turning point in John's Gospel where the Lord Jesus speaks no longer to Israel. He says no more to them. From that point on, he's silent to Israel. He has finished with them. And in fact, if you read John's Gospel, you find it divides itself into two very straightforward parts. And both those parts are intimated by the use of an expression, his own, his own. Chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Chapter 13, he has stopped in chapter 12, speaking to Israel, the nation. Chapter 13, he's alone in the upper room with his own, who were in the world. And he loved them to the very end. He has a new, his own, a new Israel. And so as you read Luke, for example, in his account, it's hardly surprising that Jesus in Luke 6 goes, up, 6 goes up into a mountain as Moses went up into a mountain and gathered around him 12 disciples as Moses had gathered around him the 12 tribes and he begins a new Israel. Confirmed in chapter, uh, in Luke's Gospel at the Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah come to meet with Jesus and what are they discussing with Jesus? Luke says they discussed the exodus, that's the word in the Greek, the exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Here is a new Israel, here is a new exodus. And on the night in which he betray was betrayed, there is a new Passover meal, there is a new meal for this new Israel of God. In other words, what we find in the New Testament is a movement from old to new Israel. So that when some Gentile becomes a Christian, they don't become a Gentile Christian alongside a Jewish Christian. Let, let me give you an illustration about this. It will embarrass a couple of people who are here tonight, but hey, I'm up here, they're down there, they can't do anything about it. When, uh, when our oldest daughter got married, she married, she, she's Scottish. She's not really, well, she is Scottish, yeah. She, she always says she's Scottish because obviously that's the best part of the contribution to her genetic makeup. And, uh, and uh, she married an Armenian. I want to underline that. He's not an Armenian. If he was an Armenian, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have allowed him to marry my daughter. But he's an Armenian. He's a Calvinistic Armenian. So that's good. Uh, born in, in Lebanon. So here are these two people. Okay, one Scottish, one, Le one Lebanese. And they get married and they live in London. They're actually living in her territory, really. Okay. And that's kind of uneven. That's not, that's not really fair, is it? That's not, it's not perfect and ideal. 
But then these two people, they move to America, and these two people, one is Scottish, one is Lebanese, they moved to the United States, and now they are American citizens. They have become the third thing. And what the book of Acts teaches is this, that when a Jewish person believes in Jesus, and when a Gentile person believes in Jesus, they don't coexist as two separate things, a Jewish believer, a Gentile believer, they become Israelites. They become the part of the Israel of God, the people of God. All that Israelite language is used of the church. But the people of God is a very, very Israelite expression. The house of God, the temple, it's all packed in there and used of God, of the church. Okay, for free. This next little bit I'm going to tell you is for free. Okay, this is, I'm throwing this out just because you're here and uh, you look as if you could do some, a freebie before you leave. How is it? How does this work? How does this work? In, in Isaiah chapter 49, in Isaiah chapter 49, it's a great chapter. One day I'm going to do Isaiah for you here because it's such a great book. Uh, the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord is the one who is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You, you know all those passages, Isaiah 53. The servant of the Lord is identified. He's given a name in Isaiah 49. Let me read it to you. He said to me, this is a servant speaking, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now here's an individual person. He's a servant of the Lord. He's going to be killed and rise again, giving you a clue as to who this servant is. This servant is given a name. His name is Israel. And here's the task. Here's the mission of the servant, Israel. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 49, verse 6 now. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, old Israel, to bring back the preserved of Israel, those who had been dispersed, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. My servant Israel will collect up the remnants of old Israel and the scattered ones of old Israel. And people from all the nations will bring them to himself. And so when you come to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2, who is this child who's born, this son that's given? He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That's at the beginning of Luke's work. At the end of Luke's work, Acts chapter 26, Paul says that the Messiah was to suffer and by that reason, and by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to Gentiles. So if you're a Jew and you become a believer in Jesus, you're a Gentile and you become a believer in Jesus, where are you? You are in Christ. You are in him. Who is he? He is the Israel of God. I am the vine. That was the, the national 
symbol of Israel. I am the vine and you are the branches. Where is the believer? The believer is in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in Israel. You're an Israelite. You belong to the Israel of God. You belong to Jesus. You're at home there. You have a new identity. You have a new position. The church is the Israel of God. That's really what they're coming to terms with as they come to the conclusion in chapter 10, verse 45. The believers among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. They read, they read that prophecy that's used in chapter 2 of, I, of uh, Acts. The quotation from Joel that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh in the last days. They understood that as meaning all flesh who are Israel. And they were probably right. That's why they're amazed when they see the Spirit poured out in Gentiles. They see for the first time that Gentiles are fully part of the Israel of God. Later on in this chapter, uh, in verse 26, Christians, the first time the word is used, these who become part of Christ, those who are in him, the new Israel of God, are called Christianoi. Christianoi, which means little messianic ones. That's what you are. Isn't that a lovely picture? It's a diminutive. It's about children who are part of the Messiah, in the Messiah, little messianic ones. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, that's what you are. You're part of the Israel of God. And so the outpouring of the Spirit points to the welcome of God to all the nations that if you bow to Israel's king, if you bow to Israel's king, you take Israel's name upon you and you become part of the Israel of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that this bit of uh, teaching this evening would give us a sense of our identity as the people of God. And as we come now to the table and to celebrate that Passover that Jesus celebrated and to be reminded by these elements of the work that he did for us, help us to rejoice in the fact that we are part of Zion, the city of God, that we belong to the new Israel of God, that we have all the promises, to us belong the promises, to us belong Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and the great prophets. They are our people. They, these are our home. And that we are together this evening as those who are your little messianic ones. We come to you in his name. Amen.